0: I'm Jill Rowe. In this episode, Steve Chalk and I talk about anger, beauty and love and how we might understand what is going on in the news cycle. We jump right into chatting about disgrace and the people who had a cheeky smoke between the sermon and communion and how grace won the day. Hello, Steve. Hello, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I know. Again? Again?
1: Yeah. it's really good
0: um, are you okay?
1: I've had a good day actually yeah lots of things happening my head's spinning from it all but it's a relaxing experience to be here I know it is
0: nice way yeah. nice way to spend the couple of hours together mm. so I've been thinking why is it that Christians and I guess lots of people of faith are kind of angry a lot of the
1: time but anyway, we'll get there. We'll mm. get there. But it's... It's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, in fact, but... I've been dealing with some of them today, just a few <laughs> who are angry at me. Oh, well, that, but that's... that's yes, part that, of everyday yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- my everyday experience. So, yeah, you um, got
0: it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny old world, isn't it?
1: But um, I
0: was looking in a, a magazine today um, and looking at some of the stories that were being reported. Mm. And you, when you engage... When you look at the media, when you... Oh, Facebook and all the rest of it and you listen to the news, it feels like joy has gone from the public space. Mm. That we we live in a world that feels currently, maybe it's just here, dear God, let it just be currently um, where it's about what's going wrong rather than celebrating the amazing good news stuff that's happening in the world.
1: Yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't yeah. it? It's a strange thing years and years ago I, I read a book by a guy called Marshall McLuhan, very famous author and uh, and his theory of what makes the news the news so you know you you turn on the news at 10 and the news fills half an hour it's always half yeah. an hour long it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> how is that yeah I mean. <laughs> The news never lasts for forty eight minutes, or they never say there 's not much news today it 's only going to take twelve minutes it 's always exactly half an hour or whatever. So his point was, why is the news always that long, or in a newspaper, why is it always fifty two pages long or whatever, whatever or, yeah. you know on a blog this you know well, he wrote that he wrote this book before anybody wrote blogs, but do you need know, yeah, to get yeah. the point? And he said, it's all to do with the horse and the telegraph.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) So
1: he said, this is a a famous thing. I don't think it's even a theory. It's the truth. He said, before the invention of the telegraph, how fast did news travel? How fast could news travel? Yeah. And the answer, he said, was as fast as a horse could gallop. And it could only travel as far as a horse could gallop. So... News travelled at about Mm. 30 miles an hour. yeah, And therefore, news in one village could only spread to the next village at 30 miles an hour and the next village at 30 miles an hour from there. And there was a limit to how far that news could go. So he said, not only did news travel slowly, but that meant the nature of the news was different because it was all about what was going on in your community and communities you knew and people you knew. And because it was people you knew and were related to and lived alongside your family for eons, actually, your attitude to the news changed because you knew them. And when it was bad news, you sympathized with them, empathized with them. You helped. You said, what can I do about this? You went and you got involved. Yeah. But, said Marshall McLuhan, all that changed with the invention of the telegraph. Because now news could travel right it's an American book, right across America from the West Coast to the East Coast in nanoseconds. It traveled at the speed that electricity could travel yes. down a line. And that meant that on the East Coast, you're getting news from the West Coast, you know none of the people. You know none of the context. You know none of the communities. You don't feel any empathy. You get this this news in a totally objective way without knowing the story behind the story, the thing behind the thing. And that changes the nature of the news as well because instead of hearing the little stories about Harry's crop failing or a bumper crop or uh, twins being born to a family down the street. Now the news is all big stuff that's made it all the way across America. And now of course, across the world in seconds. So at one and the same time, news travels really quickly, but it's the nature's changed and we feel isolated from it. We feel that it's remote. It's got nothing to do with us. And then we make premature judgments about things. It's always the same, isn't it? You hear this really bad story about someone and you believe it until you get to know them. <laughs> yeah. And you go, oh.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So Marshall McLuhan said the alienation we experience is all to do with the telegraph.
0: It's incredible, isn't it? And as a result, what you get is this kind of peddling of despair. Yeah, isn't it? That goes on, and you the great stories, the good news stories, the little stories like the twins being born or the incredible achievements get reduced to footnotes, and don't they?
1: And then don't get in at all, yeah, because they're edited out. Because the newspaper can only be 52 pages long, or the, the news is only half an hour long. So, all those little stories the point is, because the news has become national and now global, nobody cares about the two little twins yeah. born in the village. They don't, it's irrelevant to them. So that goes, it disappears. All that matters is big stories. But the problem with the big stories is it's always about a crisis because there's always a crisis somewhere. And the disempowering nature of it is I know nothing about it. And anyway, I can't do anything about it. So I guess we've all had the experience, I have it very often, of I sit in front of the news and I watch what's going on in a village in Africa and. I cry yeah, because I feel so disempowered, so, so angst. So I feel the pain of this, but there's nothing I can do about it. But I think another response, a very common response is, and I see it around me sometimes, um, I'm with people and they say, turn it off, turn it off. Mm. And they turn it off out of despair. I can't take this anymore. I just can't watch it. So I turn it off and then you end up with a world... Yeah. Without connection.
0: Yeah, there's an amazing story that I read. I read it earlier today, actually. Where uh, last week um, there was a little boy. I think it was. A, I can't remember the name of the, the town or city he was from in Brazil, where he was pictured. CCTV caught him um, sitting on a um, on the curb outside his house, with um, a streetlight providing the light he needed to do his homework. Hmm. Um, and someone, uh, a wealthy businessman, mm. who saw that story this week, uh, contacted the family where that little boy was from, and has uh, is going through the process of rebuilding their house, so it's got electricity. He st- put some funding into their school. He's so all of this great stuff is happening, and there's this amazing good news. It's, mm. it's brilliant. It's a like that man. Is refusing to have a disconnection. He's refusing. Mm. But this thing about the being good news, Mm. you feel it in our communities, don't you? You feel uh, that people are looking for the good. But the overwhelming message sometimes can be uh, that we're dislocated from each other and we don't belong to each other. And and sometimes, tragically, it is people of faith who are perpetuating that kind of division between... People,
1: yeah, uh, I think so. I was talking to somebody about this last night. There's a lot of talk now. I don't know if you picked it up. The book was written about anywhere people and somewhere people. Oh, yeah. And and they were saying the real division in the world isn't between the left and the right, the left wing and the right wing, it's between anywhere people who are in the minority, who are the privileged, who can be anywhere, live anywhere. And I live in London, yeah. I live in New York, I've got the choice, live, you know, got yeah. a choice, and somewhere people who are really rooted. And most people um, live their whole life, they say, within 25 miles of where their parents lived. They don't know, so so they're somewhere people, they're rooted into a community and a culture. Yeah, I think the problem with the news is it becomes anywhere news instead of somewhere yeah, absolutely. news. <laughs> and for me, uh, this is exactly what I was saying to this guy last night, is that the ethic of Jesus and therefore a person that follows Christ should be that we're always somewhere people, we're never anywhere people. Because the ethic of the gospel, the message about Jesus, is that Jesus, God, is a somewhere person. Mm. You know, Jesus is a somewhere person. Um, I know we're far from Christmas at the moment, but <laughs> Gosh. I am yeah, always get frustrated about this at Christmas because yeah. you listen to um, lots of um, stuff on the telly and on the radio and Christians talking religious stuff mm-hmm. and they always say the miracle of Christmas is that God became... A human being, that's the incarnation. God became a man, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I always think that's not what the story's about. It's not that God became a man or God became a human being. It's that God became a specific man with olive skin in a specific locality somewhere, not anywhere, talking a particular language, wearing particular dress, loving a particular style of music and jokes and a set of relationships in a particular village, he was earthed. So Jesus grows up somewhere, he knows people, he loves people, yeah. he laughs with people, he weeps over their deaths, he embraces them, he's got aunts and uncles and cousins you know, yeah. and then brothers and sisters. He's part of being somewhere earthed. And that is what gives you your love for people. If you're not in community, you won't feel that. And I think that some elements and some aspects of the church are more about meeting together and singing songs, and we meet in a building. The yeah. building and some, some churches, even you know, they tour around, don't they? They yeah. kind of, oh, we get this building in this town, but oh, we got a cheaper deal or a bigger deal because we've yeah. grown here rather than being earthed in a community and serving a community and knowing a community. I, the, the first church I ever worked for, um, the, the leaders of the church used to say, and it was true because every Sunday we used to get complaints about all the people that parked Parking. up the street. <laughs> and they used to say, the, leaders of the church was, if we were no longer here, what would the community miss about us? And the answer was... Such
0: a good question. <laughs>
1: yeah. They, they, they wouldn't miss anything. They'd just be able to park on a Sunday. Because <laughs> yeah, all these people had come in yeah. from such a long way and they parked and blocked up the street, and the community was always complaining. But did the community know us? Did we know them? The answer to all those questions was no, 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 no. Whereas the very message of Jesus is about being somewhere, not an anywhere person, somewhere. And that changes the news. It changes how you feel. It changes your responses. It changes everything. It's what the Bible calls incarnation rather than being a somewhere person, but we should be somewhere people
0: absolutely and I, I often think about you know if 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 we had been around when jesus was you know way back then as you've described a specific person in a specific context what would what what would Je- what would it have been like to be around mm. this jesus mm. i think there'd be a lot of laughter i mm. think there'd be joy i think it would be really good conversation mm. like sometimes heated i think that, you know, you joke together and walk together. and uh, Like I'm just, I always imagine those early followers of Jesus, like just being around this amazing, normal human being. Mm. But there being life around, mm. which, you know, if the church is meant to be mm. this representation of that now, mm. do I think of joy? Do I think of life? Do I think of Often it isn't that, it's, mm. it's judgment, it's, mm. it's not that way.
1: Mm. I am, um, story about me actually is that um, I grew up in a church that wasn't particularly earth in its community mm. at all, but it believed this gospel and it believed that everybody who didn't come was a sinner. you back to this bad yeah. news thing.
0: Did it have one of those signs outside?
1: We had various signs. The wages outside. of sin. Is- oh yeah, no, we had that sometimes. Yeah, we had the wages of sin is death. I always think that's is, a really yeah. chirpy piece. Yeah, no, it's great. Some good news good in your news. day when you're on the bus. The wages of sin is death. Um, Cheers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had various signs like that, and most of them utterly incomprehensible. Uh, at least that one is comprehensible. It's just yeah. that it's very bad news <laughs> for everyone. But anyway, it was a church like that, um, it's sad to say. And, and we saw everybody who didn't come... As a sinner, and that's why they didn't come because they were sinner. If they were like us, they'd show up. You yeah, know? yeah. And people who did once come and didn't come anymore as backslidden.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, Do right. You remember yeah, that yeah term? I remember that phrase. They were all oh, they're backsliding.
1: <sighs> yeah. And then there was another term that we used to use that because there's a, a phrase in in a in a, a, a talk that uh, Stephen gives in the Acts of the Apostles, who's who's becomes the first. Martyr, he's yeah, you know yeah. he's he's stoned because um, not stoned, as in <laughs> I was just gonna actually, say, Wow, as, well there you go. <laughs> as huge rocks thrown at him, <laughs> not
0: quite stoned. No, no, yeah.
1: I mean really stoned badly, <laughs> as in slaughtered. Dead. Yeah, and um, and it, he's been speaking, and in uh, in some translations of the Bible, what he says he's he he says to the people who are ganging up on him yeah. you're stiff-necked people he said. oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah do you know yeah, that yeah, place? Yeah. and so in my church they used to say they're sinners that if they once belong but they don't belong anymore it's because they're backslidden but if these sinners who never came they were just stiff-necked <laughs> So, uh, like stiff-necked so people weird. or backsliders. <laughs> so it's a pretty pessimistic view of the whole of the human race, isn't yeah. it, kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't know the word pessimistic then, I don't suppose. But, uh, but I, as a kid, I used to think that, I honestly used to sit there and think, this is pretty miserable, basically. Yeah. We don't like anyone and they clearly yeah. don't like us, which is why they don't come. Absolutely. Yeah, but we never saw it that way as a church. They didn't come because they were... Stiff-necked.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're right there.
1: Yeah. No, I, there was this, anyway, the sorry. thing is, no, I was telling you this story. So in the end, I was very fortunate because um, uh, years and years later, yeah. I, I got this job being on TV. You know, I being, remember Being a presenter Steve. of the TV yeah. in the 1990s, the last millennium, <laughs> the last century. Anyway.
0: And you had dark hair. Yeah, you?
1: yeah. And the funny thing was my Christian leaders... Right. Yeah. Christian leaders of my denomination told me, well, one of them, the leader of the denomination, wrote to me, I wish I'd kept the letter, but he wrote to me warning me about getting involved with these adulterous people, who were stiff-necked, of
0: course,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know these adulterous people, and uh, that it would make me backslide. So they wow. were stiff-necked. I'd backslide because I was involved with all these terrible people, yeah. the kind of people who inhabit television stations and, yeah. and be I've careful. I've heard that, I've heard be that. Be careful all television. these women <laughs> and, uh, yeah, especially, you know. <laughs> and the funny thing was, after working for ITV for about a year, yeah, uh, perhaps a bit more, I sat with um, one of the female presenters one yeah. day I just, uh, and she said to me, she said, so over this time, I guess I chilled out. And she said to me, Steve, you're so much nicer than you used to be. <laughs> she said, when you first came here, you were really difficult. And <laughs> yeah." And I realised that I'd put up lots of defences because I'd come from this place where I thought these people were really, really bad news. Yeah, but actually, I learned through my relationships with them that still continue to this day, yeah. all these years later, 30 years. They're wonderful, lovely, beautiful people. And I another friend who, um, who sadly has died now, he was a floor manager for ITV, and his name was Billy. And um, Billy once, one day, he said to me, because everybody knew I was a Christian, yeah. and he was telling me about his problems, his issues, and he said, and Steve, whatever you say, don't tell me that the answer is to go to church. <laughs> And then he said, because the truth is, I've got enough problems as it is. Exactly. I never get, he said, I've got enough problems as it is without religion. And, yeah. and that, I told Billy often, I hope, and I wish I could tell him again, but that comment yeah. did so much for me because I realised we are these negative people.
0: Yeah. yeah, and we're not nice to be around sometimes, are we, when we're, when we see other, if you if you view another person as bad, I think mm. it's bizarre. But anyway, so that, I saw I saw oh. this. I just because it fits yeah. with what you've just been saying. I saw this. Uh, it was a, it was on uh, Twitter today where um, someone had said young people avoid church because it has systematically abused children, maligned LGBT people, hoarded wealth, trampled the poor, and I added this last bit, and behaved as if women were of less value than men. What the church actually thinks is that young people have stayed away because they don't like God or Jesus, and that misreading mm. of the reality for so many people is that you know mm. they they stay away like your friend Billy mm. because they have a view of what the church is yeah. that's like yeah. what? Yeah, you
1: know? and I think that sometimes what can happen. I don't want to be negative because, well, I hope we end positively this conversation, but a church feels like like if we have comfortable chairs and wonderful video projection and a great band and a trendy leader and lovely welcome leaflets and delicious coffee, that would do. But it never does because people see past all of those things to the core of the message. Mm. And the message is, God doesn't like you very much and we don't like you very much as you are and you've got to change. And I think that all these symptoms are born out of, um, they're born out theology all the time. So we read the news from around the world and we judge the person because we don't know them and we assume the worst. As you say, we never assume the best, we assume the worst. Why do we assume the worst? Because we don't know them, because the news isn't local. But we assume the worst because our theological basis tells us the worst. It yeah. tells us that all these people were born into sin.
0: What does that original mean?
1: Original sinners. You know, You're, you you yeah. are born sinful, and redemption's only found through Jesus. There's nothing good in us. There's a form of Christianity, isn't there? Again, uh, Calvinism, and the first basic creed of Calvinism is what's called total depravity. So it looks at everyone and it assumes that total depravity. There's not a vestige of good left in Mm. someone unless they are saved. So you get the news that's come to you by the telegraph or now by the satellite. You don't know any of the context, any of the people, any of the struggle, any of the backstory, any of the eight ache and pain behind the actions of someone who may have acted in a way when presented the news seems obnoxious or dehumanizing or whatever, but you don't know who they are. But you overlay that with your total depravity, original sin. They are in need of salvation and we write them Mm. off. And I think that's so different to Jesus who wasn't an anywhere person, a somewhere person, earthed in a place, loves people.
0: Yeah. New people. Everybody.
1: You so love ha- people you know, don't you?
0: Yeah. So what's the shift that people need to... Because I think it's the shift from anger to joy. Like, mm. to me, it's... it's If you enter a room, a space... Um, I heard um, uh, Lance Black speak recently, um, the um, Oscar-winning director, and he, he talked about how you enter every room with curiosity and courage, whether that's about your own development or the people you're with or whatever. And I I, I've, I think my view is the same, that everybody you, every space you move into, the person in front of you is, a, is like a book that you've not read. It's, there's, They're interesting and they're full of story and um, they've got value and purpose and potential and so have you and you're... Mm-hmm. So how do you... What do you think the shift is that people need to make? Yes, there's this theology that sits mm. under it, but change comes when
1: we actually do stuff, rather mm. than, doesn't and, it? And getting get engaged and involved. Yeah. So another story: some years ago, there I can't remember the year. You probably remember. There were big riots across London one summer, it. August. Yeah. I can't it was remember. Twenty eleven wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I can't remember which mm. year. But the point the point of this story is: Oasis had just built. A brand new school, using government's money, it cost almost thirty million pounds. Just say it was the government's money, not ours. We haven't (laughs) got thirty million. We haven't got thirty pounds, but we built a school (laughs) that cost thirty million pounds. And these riots had spread across London in a few days. And but I'd gone on holiday. I was out of the country, and um, it so happened that the second day of the riots, when buildings were burning down everywhere, do you remember? And there's a huge building next to our school building yeah. in North London that was the Sony Centre. It was yeah. their distribution centre. And it had burnt down the day before, the night before. In fact, it burnt for five days and it made all the national news. Anyway, the building slap bang next to it was our £30 million school. And I was out the country and I got a phone call. And I answered this phone call because it was from the chief executive of that London borough. And he said to me, Steve, I'm just ringing to tell you that um, the police tell me because they can listen to the the text messages and all that kind of stuff. The intelligence tells us that tonight your school is going to be burnt down. That's the plan. The same gang—they're moving it now. Remember the but riots were right across London, so there was nothing much anyone could do about it. So I said, "So what should we do? What should we do? Should, what should we, let's tell the police, uh, you know, because uh, let's tell the fire brigade. Let's do that." And he said, "No, there's nothing that can be done because that, you know, that the the army were helping man the streets. You know, said he said they won't turn out until the building is on fire." I said, that's ridiculous. He said, well, it's just because they're so thinly yeah, spread. resources, yeah. Yeah, so I'm ringing you to tell you that you should shut the building down as much as you can so perhaps it won't all burn. Um, you should evacuate the building so that you don't have any night staff or mm. security staff there um, and there's nothing that can be done about it because the gangs are yeah. you know, out there. They're on the streets right now. So I sat there in this little hotel room and I thought, what on earth am I going to do? This is ridiculous. And then, so I did two things. I ran a guy called Mark, who works for us, who's in charge of insurances. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> Mark, is there any chance you can up the insurance on this building? Um, I, tried, I tried that route, which he couldn't do. I realized we couldn't remove the security staff because if we remove the security staff then every insurance would be invalid. But we had to protect the security staff. Mm-hmm. So I rang our youth worker there in that community, I mean, you know, her name was Kat, she yeah. doesn't work there anymore. And I said, I told Kat this story, I said, the building's gonna burn down. So she lived there, she could see Sonny building still yes. burning. Uh, she said, I said, the building's gonna burn down and the police aren't coming and the fire brigade aren't coming and nothing can be done. And But we can't let the building burn down. and. She said, ''Well, what should I do?'' I said, ''I don't know, Kat, but you know everyone. It's up to you. You've got to think of something.'' This was about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. It's going to happen after it got dark. Anyway, Kat baked some cakes, lots of cakes, with some kids in the youth group that she ran, and they went to the building, and they sat round the building that night. There's some seating outside, and they gave away cakes... And the gangs came and they gave them cakes and they sat down and they talked to them because they knew most of them. Mm. And the building never burnt. And central government saved 30 million pounds. And it was to do with you don't tell... You don't do bad stuff to people you know.
0: Exactly. Does,
1: does that make sense? Who you're in relationship yeah. with, yeah. who is a somewhere person, who's earthed in your community, and Cat didn't feel bad. At, she knew these kids. Yeah. She knew the gang who burnt the thing, the centre down. But she loved them, and she knew their backstories, and she knew their pain and their poverty and their deprivation, etc., etc., etc. And I suppose some people listening to this will go, "But they're evil." But actually, I don't believe in original sin. I believe in original goodness. And I think that's what the Bible teaches. We're made in the image of God. We're good, but we get broken. We got wounds inside. You never break my arm. You can see I've broken my arm and you come and sympathize with me and you heal it. But if if my soul is broken, my spirit is broken, my brain is broken because... Of the pain that 's been inflicted on me, no one sees that, and these are wounds that don 't heal, but all those kids loved Cat and she loved them, and the building didn 't burn because she believed good news about them Absolutely. and that was a few years ago, and it 's amazing what some of them have gone on to do actually
0: so the shift is to go from to go from anger to joy is to become the kind of people who choose to be in relationship with others. Hmm. And to be known. Yeah. And to and, know.
1: Yeah. And go back to what you said about LGBT people yeah. and that, you know, that quote about the church is yeah, bad yeah, to LGBT oh, yeah, yeah. You know. Maligned LGBT so, people, hoarded wealth, trampled the poor. Yeah, well, you can imagine that I've told you a bit about the church I grew up in. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. Prepare, to, prepare to meet your doom and yeah. all of that, the wages of sin is death. Yeah. You can imagine they weren't particularly friendly towards any gay people. <laughs> And therefore (laughs) therefore didn't know any gay people and therefore could malign gay people and write gay people off and judge gay people. Hmm. And of course, I was part of that because I didn't know any gay people and I believed the story I was told and it was self-evident that no gay people came to our church. Therefore, they were (laughs) stiff-necked, you know, and backslidden and whatever else. And... The funny thing about me, well, it's not funny, is what happened was much later in life, actually through TV, you know, uh, through being in TV, I met a whole group of gay Mm. people who were in the arts Mm. and I realised I really loved them. I really loved them because I knew them. And they were Uh, good people. And much better dressed than me. (laughs) <laughs> Do you know, they knew about stuff and they became my friends. I mean, they became my friends Absolutely. who I loved. And you can't despise someone who you know.
0: So suddenly and that angry narrative just doesn't well,
1: work. And then anymore. I began to see that my angry narrative theology yeah. original sin, all these people are dreadful, it just wasn't true. Do you know? No. So I either had to say, I don't believe the Bible anymore, or. Well, these people don't fit my Bible theory. Yeah. And so that drove me back, I hope, to a deeper, more serious reading of, in this case, the Genesis story, yeah. uh, et, cetera, et cetera. And I began to dig into the fact that actually Jesus' anger was only ever saved for religious leaders that judged other people. It's an extraordinary thing. You read the Gospels. Jesus was yeah. only ever angry with the Pharisees and the scribes and the people who who poured judgment out on others. For everyone else, the sinners, as the religious leaders called them, the ordinary people, the nobodies, the... the Jesus, it, Jesus whole story is consumed with passion and acceptance. He was always hanging around with the wrong people, drinking with the wrong people, eating with the wrong people, associating with the wrong people. And he's never angry with them. His judgment is always on those who turn their backs on others and self-righteously put other people down.
0: So, quick question for you. Whilst you've been talking, I've been thinking, what does... Because I think I, I know, I think I know. So on my laptop, on my, on my uh, desktop, I have a little file. It just says, am I a friend of sinners? But I don't mean sinners in that kind of weird way. I think I mean it quite differently. What do you understand by the word sinners?
1: Well, I think that the word sinner in context yeah. just meant social outcast. So women were regarded as sinners. Shepherds were regarded as sinners. That's the wonderful thing about the announcement of Jesus' birth comes first to shepherds because they're chief scum. Yep. You I mean. The people who followed Jesus were regarded as sinners. Tax collectors were regarded as sinners. The word sinners in context actually means social outcast spiritual outcast. Mm. And Jesus calls everybody who's outcast back in.
0: Yeah. So for me, that's why I have that. It's just like this reminder. Am I choosing to be with people who are always the same as me, to be anywhere, you know, the role of privilege? Or am I choosing... I am can be an outcast as well. You know, I'm female, etc. So am I actually choosing to be in relationship with people each day? Am I choosing to be towards those who are different to me rather than just, oh, well, these people are the same and they make me feel safe? And, mm. and I think that that, like, to me, that's part of what this is yeah, all about. Yeah.
1: And, and you'd expect me to say this, being a church leader as I am, that's what a church must be. If a church isn't that, it's mm. a club. So the piece of understanding that I've slowly gathered actually um, from a very famous theologian called Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope in Pope, the end, yeah. but um, Ratzinger um, wrote um, lots around this, mostly incomprehensible. I mean, it's deep theology, so you can get lost in it. But so, I, I, but my. R- my repopularizing, or saying it in superficial terms, what yeah. he says in deep terms. Um, he he writes about a lot about the Trinity. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He says he doesn't use any of these words, but he says God isn't three fathers, three sons, or three spirits. Not mm. a gang of fathers, a gaggle of sons, you know, a muddle of spirits. God. Is a community, mm. but a community of diversity, father, son, and spirit, a community of difference. And then goes on to say that's what community is. If a community isn't a community of difference, actually, it's not like God. And the truth is, it's not a community, it's a club. Three fathers make a club, mm. it's about sameness. Three sons, a gang, about sameness, etc. But the Trinity. Is about diversity and unity, which is what makes it a true community, therefore, a church that 's filled with people of sameness, be that in terms of their race or their age or their sexuality or their gender or you know their intellectual ability um, a church that 's full of people of sameness isn 't a church it 's a club. Mm. A community will always reach out and embrace the other, the one that challenges. And through my um, painful journey in all of these things, I've learned that when you reach out to the other who's different to you, you discover they're beautiful. Mm. And that drives you away from your theology of original sin to a theology of original goodness and beauty.
0: So, wouldn't it just be brilliant if the church was known for being, and followers of Jesus were known as those who are hope filled, mm. full of love, curious, present, mm. alive, mm. passionate about challenging injustice? Mm. That's what we, that mm. we, oh, to be, mm. to see that more would mm. be glorious. That's the good news you want to read, isn't
1: it? Mm. When you, when you, you see, uh, uh, when you say that, I, I've always, you always remind me of another story. So when I, when I came to be the, the leader of the church here, which was very small. In Waterloo? In Waterloo. It was very, very small um, in terms of people. Mm. <laughs> Big old building, but a small group of people. More well, slowly, people, new people began coming along. And as you know, there's some, a kind of patio yeah. Bit with some steps which we rarely use anymore, but there it is. And people used to nip out there halfway through the service sometimes for a fag. <laughs> You'd get loads like, of people just going out to a fag and they'd come back in, you know, because they, they got boring, yeah, and yeah, they'd come back in <laughs> and they. Then, uh, and then sometimes, if we had a communion service, which we'd do the communion on the end of the service, people would nip out after the talk for a quick fag during the song <laughs> before they came back into the communion. It was hilarious. And somebody who'd been part of the church for a long, long time said to me, It's a disgrace. Huh. It's a disgrace. The whole thing is a disgrace. That's a big word. People isn't it? shouldn't be able to do that. And I, yeah, I went away and I thought about it because they were quite cross with me. And I thought, actually, they're right. Their attitude towards these people is actually a disgrace, which is where the word comes from. Yeah. They had disgraced them, yeah. whereas the church's job is to grace everyone.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so a church which is a community of difference We'll have people who go out and have a fag on the patio or whatever, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because we're a group of people who are all broken. Mm. You know, the one thing you can be sure about everybody who was going out to have a fag on the patio is they wish they weren't, you know, and they were trying to battle with this habit of, you know, this that they were they were locked it this addiction that they were locked into, and they needed our joyous, celebratory acceptance and grace not to be thought of as a disgrace but it was us that were disgracing them
0: that is a brilliant place to finish I think thank you